The Moonstone, Part 32. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone, by Wilkie Collins. Read by Joel Portinger. The Discovery of the Truth. Second Narrative. Chapter 2. The next thing I have to do is to present such additional information as I possess on the subject of the Moonstone, or, to speak more correctly, on the subject of the Indian plot to steal the diamond. The little that I have to tell is, as I think I have already said, of some importance, nevertheless, in respect of its bearing very remarkably on the events which are still to come. About a week, or ten days after Miss Verinda had left us, one of my clerks entered the private room at my office, with a card in his hand, and informed me that a gentleman was below who wanted to speak to me. I looked at the card. There was a foreign name written on it, which has escaped my memory. It was followed by a line, written in English, at the bottom of the card, which I remember perfectly well. Recommended by Mr. Septimus Luker. The audacity of a person in Mr. Luker's position, presuming to recommend anybody to me, took me so completely by surprise that I sat silent for the moment, wondering whether my own eyes had not deceived me. The clerk, observing my bewilderment, favoured me with the result of his own observation of the stranger who was waiting downstairs. "'He's a rather remarkable-looking man, sir, so dark in the complexion that we all set him down in the office for an Indian, or something of that sort.' Associating the clerk's idea with a very offensive line inscribed on the card in my hand, I instantly suspected that the moonstone was at the bottom of Mr. Luker's recommendation, and of the stranger's visit at my office. To the astonishment of my clerk, I at once decided on granting an interview to the gentleman below. In justification of the highly unprofessional sacrifice to mere curiosity which I thus made, Permit me to remind anybody who may read these lines that no living person, in England at any rate, can claim to have had such an intimate connection with the romance of the Indian diamond as mine has been. I was entrusted with a secret of Colonel Herncastle's plan for escaping assassination. I received the Colonel's letters, periodically reporting himself a living man. I drew his will, leaving the moonstone to Miss Verinder. I persuaded his executor to act on the chance that the jewel might prove to be a valuable acquisition to the family. And, lastly, I combated Mr. Franklin Blake's scruples and induced him to be the means of transporting the diamond to Lady Verinder's house. If anyone can claim a prescriptive right of interest in the moonstone and in everything connected with it, I think it is hardly to be denied that I am the man. The moment my mysterious client was shown in, I felt an inner conviction that I was in the presence of one of the three Indians, probably of the chief. He was carefully dressed in European costume, but his swarthy complexion, his long, lithe figure, and his grave and graceful politeness of manner were enough to betray his oriental origin to any intelligent eyes that looked at him. I pointed to a chair, and begged to be informed of the nature of his business with me. After first apologizing, in an excellent selection of English words, for the liberty which he had taken in disturbing me, the Indian produced a small parcel, the outer covering of which was of cloth of gold. Removing this, and a second wrapping of some silken fabric, he placed a little box, or casket, on my table, most beautifully and richly inlaid in jewels on an ebony ground. "'I have come, sir,' he said, "'to ask you to lend me some money.' and I leave this as an assurance to you that my debt will be paid back. 
I pointed to his card. "'And you applied to me,' I rejoined, "'at Mr. Luca's recommendation.' The Indian bowed. "'May I ask how it is that Mr. Luca himself did not advance the money that he require?' "'Mr. Luca informed me, sir, that he had no money to lend.' "'And so he recommended you to come to me.' The Indian, in his turn, pointed to the card. "'It is written here,' he said. Briefly answered, and thoroughly to the purpose, if the moonstone had been in my possession, this oriental gentleman would have murdered me, I am well aware, without a moment's hesitation. At the same time, and barring that slight drawback, I am bound to testify that he was the perfect model of a client. He might not have respected my life, but he did what none of my own countrymen have ever done in all my experience of them. He respected my time. "'I'm sorry,' I said, that you should have had the trouble of coming to me. Mr. Luker is quite mistaken in sending you here. I am trusted, like other men of my profession, with money to lend, but I never lend it to strangers, and I never lend it on such a security as you have produced. Far from attempting, as other people would have done, to induce me to relax my own rules, the Indian only made me another bow, and wrapped up his box in its two coverings without a word of protest. He rose— this admirable assassin rose to go the moment I had answered him. "'Will your condescension towards a stranger excuse my asking one question?' said he. "'Before I take my leave?' I bowed on my side. Only one question at parting. The average, in my experience, was fifty. "'Supposing, sir, it had been possible and customary for you to lend me the money,' he said, in what space of time would it have been possible and customary for me to pay it back? According to the usual course pursued in this country, I answered, you would have been entitled to pay the money back, if you liked, in one year's time from the date at which it was first advanced to you. The Indian made me a last bow, the lowest of all, and suddenly and softly walked out of the room. It was done in a moment, in a noiseless, supple, cat-like way, which little startled me, I own, as soon as I was composed enough to think, I arrived at one distinct conclusion in reference to the otherwise incomprehensible visitor who had favoured me with a call. His face, voice, and manner, while I was in his company, were under such perfect control that they set all scrutiny at defiance, but he had given me one chance of looking under the smooth outer surface of him for all that. He had not shown the slightest sign of attempting to fix anything that I said to him in his mind, until I mentioned the time at which it was customary to permit the earliest repayment, on the part of the debtor, of money that had been advanced as a loan. When I gave him that piece of information, he looked me straight in the face, while I was speaking, for the first time. The inference I drew from this was, that he had a special purpose in asking me his last question, and a special interest in hearing my answer to it. The more carefully I reflected on what had passed between us, the more shrewdly I suspected the production of the casket, and the application for the loan, of having been mere formalities, designed to pave the way for the parting inquiry addressed to me. I had satisfied myself of the correctness of this conclusion, and was trying to get on a step farther and penetrate the Indian's motives next, when a letter was brought to me which proved to be from no less a person than Mr. Septimus Lucre himself. He asked my pardon in terms of sickening servility, and assured me that he could explain matters to my satisfaction if I would honour him by consenting to a personal interview. I made another unprofessional sacrifice to mere curiosity. 
I honoured him by making an appointment at my office for the next day. Mr. Lucre was, in every respect, such an inferior creature to the Indian. He was so vulgar, so ugly, so cringing, and so prosy, that he is quite unworthy of being reported at any length in these pages. The substance of what he had to tell me may be fairly stated as follows. The day before I had received the visit of the Indian, Mr. Lucre had been favoured with a call from that accomplished gentleman. In spite of his European disguise, Mr. Lucre had instantly identified his visitor with a chief of the three Indians who had formerly annoyed him by loitering around his house, and who had left him no alternative but to consult the magistrate. From this startling discovery he had rushed to the conclusion, naturally enough I own, that he must certainly be in the company of one of the three men who had blindfolded him, gagged him, and robbed him of his banker's receipt. The result was that he became quite paralysed with terror, and that he firmly believed his last hour had come. On his side the Indian preserved the character of a perfect stranger. He produced a little casket, and made exactly the same application which he had afterward made to me. As the speediest way of getting rid of him, Mr. Lucre had at once declared that he had no money. The Indian had thereupon asked to be informed of the best and safest person to apply to for the loan he wanted. Mr. Lucre had answered that the best and safest person in such cases was usually a respectable solicitor. Asked to name some one individual of that character and profession, Mr. Lucre had mentioned to me, for the one simple reason that, in the extremity of his terror, Mine was the first name which had occurred to him. The perspiration was pouring off me like rain, sir, the wretched creature concluded. Oh, I didn't know what I was talking about, and I hope you'll overlook it, Mr. Bruff, sir, in consideration of my having been really and truly frightened out of my wits. I excused the fellow graciously enough. It was the readiest way of releasing myself from the sight of him. Before he left me, I detained him to make one inquiry. Had the Indian said anything noticeable at the moment of quitting Mr. Lucas's house? Yes, the Indian had put precisely the same question to Mr. Lucas at parting which he had put to me, receiving, of course, the same answer which I had given him. What did it mean? Mr. Lucas's explanation gave me no assistance towards solving the problem. My own unaided ingenuity, consulted next, proved quite unequal to grapple with the difficulty. I had a dinner engagement that evening, and I went upstairs in no very genial frame of mind, little suspecting that the way to my dressing-room and the way to discovery meant, on this particular occasion, one and the same thing. CHAPTER Three. The prominent personage among the guests at the dinner-party I found to be Mr. Murthwaite. On his appearance in England some months since, Society had been greatly interested in the traveller, as a man who had passed through many dangerous adventures and who had escaped to tell the tale. He had now announced his intention of returning to the scene of his exploits, and of penetrating into regions left still unexplored. This magnificent indifference to presuming on his luck, and to placing his safety in peril for the second time, revived the flagging interest of the worshippers in the hero. The law of chances was clearly against his escaping on this occasion. It is not every day that we can meet an eminent person at dinner, and feel that there is a reasonable prospect of the news of his murder being the news that we hear of him next. When the gentlemen were left by themselves in the dining-room, I found myself sitting next to Mr. Murthwaite. 
the guests present being all English, it is needless to say that, as soon as the wholesome check exercised by the presence of the ladies was removed, the conversation turned on politics as a necessary result. In respect to this all-absorbing national topic, I happen to be one of the most un-English Englishmen living. As a general rule, political talk appears to me to be of all talk the most dreary and the most profitless. Glancing at Mr. Murthwaite, when the bottles had made their first round of the table, I found that he was apparently of my way of thinking. He was doing it very dexterously, with all possible consideration for the feelings of the host, but it is not the less certain that he was composing himself for a nap. It struck me as an experiment worth attempting to try whether a judicious allusion to the subject of the moonstone would keep him awake, and if it did, to see what he thought of the last new complication in the Indian conspiracy as revealed in the prosaic precincts of my office. "'If I am not mistaken, Mr. Murthwaite,' I began, "'you were acquainted with the late Lady Verinda, and you took some interest in the strange succession of events which ended in the loss of the moonstone.' The eminent traveller did me the honour of waking up in an instant, and asking me who I was. I informed him of my professional connection with the Herncastle family, not forgetting the curious position which I had occupied towards the colonel and his diamond in the bygone time. Mr. Murthwaite shifted round in his chair, so as to put the rest of the company behind him, conservatives and liberals alike, and concentrated his whole attention on plain Mr. Bruff of Gray's Inn Square. "'Have you heard anything lately of the Indians?' he asked. "'I have every reason to believe,' I answered, "'that one of them had an interview with me in my office yesterday.' Mr. Murthwaite was not an easy man to astonish, but that last answer of mine completely staggered him. I described what had happened to Mr. Luker, and what had happened to myself, exactly as I have described it here. "'It is clear that the Indian's parting inquiry had an object,' I added. "'Why should he be so anxious to know the time at which a borrower of money is usually privileged to pay the money back?' "'Is it possible that you don't see his motive, Mr. Bruff?' "'I'm ashamed of my stupidity, Mr. Murthwaite, but I certainly don't see it.' The great traveller became quite interested in sounding the immense vacuity of my dullness to its lowest depths. "'Let me ask you one question,' he said. "'In what position does the conspiracy to seize the moonstone now stand?' "'I can't say,' I answered. "'The Indian plot is a mystery to me.' "'The Indian plot, Mr. Bruff, can only be a mystery to you, because you have never seriously examined it.' "'Shall we run over it together, from the time when you drew Colonel Herncastle's will, to the time when the Indian called at your office? In your position it may be of very serious importance to the interests of Miss Verinder that you should be able to take a clear view of this matter in case of need. Tell me, bearing that in mind, whether you will penetrate the Indian's motive for yourself, or whether you wish me to save you the trouble of making any inquiry into it.' It is needless to say that I thoroughly appreciated the practical purpose which I now saw that he had in view, and that the first of the two alternatives was the alternative I chose. "'Very well,' said Mr. Murthwaite. "'We will take the question of the ages of the three Indians first. I can testify that they all look much about the same age, and you can decide for yourself whether the man whom you saw was, or was not, in the prime of life. Not forty, you think?' My idea, too. 
we will say not forty. Now look back at the time when Colonel Herncastle came to England, and when you were concerned in the plan he adopted to preserve his life. I don't want you to count the years. I will only say it is clear that these present Indians, at their age, must be the successors of three other Indians, high-caste Brahmins, all of them, Mr. Bruff, when they left their native country, who followed the colonel to these shores. Very well. These present men of ours have succeeded to the men who were here before them. If they had only done that, the matter would not have been worth inquiring into. But they have done more. They have succeeded to the organization which their predecessors established in this country. Don't start. The organization is a very trumpery affair, according to our ideas, I have no doubt. I should reckon it up as including the command of money, the services, when needed, of that shady sort of Englishman who lives in the byways of foreign life in London, and, lastly, the secret sympathy of such few men of their own country, and, formerly, at least, of their own religion, as happen to be employed in ministering to some of the multitudinous wants of this great city. Nothing very formidable, as you see, but worth notice at starting, because we may find occasion to refer to the modest little Indian organization as we go on. Having now cleared the ground, I am going to ask you a question, and I expect your experience to answer it. What was the event which gave the Indians their first chance of seizing the diamond? I understood the allusion to my experience. The first chance they got, I replied, was clearly offered to them by Colonel Herncastle's death. They would be aware of his death, I suppose, as a matter of course. And his death, as you say, gave them their first chance. Up to that time the moonstone was safe in the strong room of the bank. You drew the colonel's will, leaving his jewel to his niece, and the will was proved in the usual way. As a lawyer, you can be at no loss to know what course the Indians would take under English advice after that. "'They would provide themselves with a copy of the will from the doctor's commons,' I said. "'Exactly. One or the other of those shady Englishmen to whom I have alluded would get them the copy you have described.' The copy would inform them that the moonstone was bequeathed to the daughter of Lady Verinder, and that Mr. Blake the Elder, or some person appointed by him, was to place it in her hands. You will agree with me that the necessary information about persons in the position of Lady Verinder and Mr. Blake would be perfectly easy to obtain. The one difficulty for the Indians would be to decide whether they should make their attempt on the diamond when it was in course of removal from the keeping of the bank, or whether they should wait until it was taken down to Yorkshire, to Lady Verinder's house. The second way would be manifestly the safest way, and there you have the explanation of the appearance of the Indians at Frizzing Hall, disguised as jugglers, and waiting their time. In London, it is needless to say, they had their organization at their disposal, to keep them informed of events. Two men would do it, one to follow anybody who went from Mr. Blake's house to the bank, and one to treat the lower men-servants with beer, and to hear the news of the house. These commonplace precautions would readily inform them that Mr. Franklin Blake had been to the bank, and that Mr. Franklin Blake was the only person in the house who was going to visit Lady Verinder. What actually followed upon that discovery you remember, no doubt, quite as correctly as I do. I remembered that Franklin Blake had detected one of the spies in the street, 
that he had, in consequence, advanced the time of his arrival in Yorkshire by some hours, and that, thanks to old Bettridge's excellent advice, he had lodged the diamond in the bank at Frizzing Hall before the Indians were so much as prepared to see him in their neighbourhood. All perfectly clear so far, but the Indians, being ignorant of the precaution thus taken, how was it that they had made no attempt on Lady Verinder's house, in which they must have supposed the diamond to be, through the whole of the interval that elapsed before Rachel's birthday? In putting this difficulty to Mr. Murthwaite, I thought it right to add that I had heard of the little boy and the drop of ink and the rest of it, and that any explanation based on the theory of clairvoyance was an explanation which would carry no conviction whatever with it to my mind. Nor to mine either said Mr. Murthwaite. The clairvoyance in this case is simply a development of the romantic side of the Indian character. It would be a refreshment and an encouragement to those men, quite inconceivable, I grant you, to the English mind, to surround their wearisome and perilous errand in this country with a certain halo of the marvellous and the supernatural. Their boy is unquestionably a sensitive subject to the mesmeric influence, and, unto that influence, he has no doubt reflected what was already in the mind of the person mesmerizing him. I have tested the theory of clairvoyance, and I have never found the manifestations get beyond that point. The Indians don't investigate the matter in this way. The Indians look upon their boys as seer of things invisible to their eyes, and, I repeat, in that marvel they find the source of a new interest in the purpose that unites them. I only notice this as offering a curious view of human character, which must be quite new to you. We have nothing whatever to do with clairvoyance, or with mesmerism, or with anything else that is hard of belief to a practical man, in the inquiry that we are now pursuing. My object in following the Indian plot, step by step, is to trace results back, by rational means, to natural causes. Have I succeeded to your satisfaction so far? "'Not a doubt of it, Mr. Murthwaite. I am waiting, however, with some anxiety to hear the rational explanation of the difficulty which I have just now had the honour of submitting to you.' Mr. Murthwaite smiled. "'It's the easiest difficulty to deal with of all,' he said. "'Permit me to begin by admitting your statement of the case as a perfectly correct one. The Indians were undoubtedly not aware of what Mr. Franklin Blake had done with the diamond.' for we find them making their first mistake on the first night of Mr. Blake's arrival at his aunt's house. "'Their first mistake?' I repeated. "'Certainly. The mistake of allowing themselves to be surprised, lurking about the terrace at night by Gabriel Betridge. However, they had the merit of seeing for themselves that they had taken a false step, for, as you say, again, with plenty of time at their disposal, they never came near the house for weeks afterward.' "'Why, Mr. Murthwaite, that's what I want to know. Why?' "'Because no Indian, Mr. Bruff, ever runs an unnecessary risk. "'The clause you drew in Colonel Herncastle's will informed them, didn't it, "'that the moonstone was to pass absolutely into Miss Verinda's possession on her birthday. "'Very well. Tell me which was the safest course for men in their position, "'to make their attempt on the diamond while it was under the control of Mr. Franklin Blake,' who had shown already that he could suspect and outwit them, or to wait till the diamond was at the disposal of a young girl who would innocently delight in wearing the magnificent jewel at every possible opportunity. Perhaps you want a proof that my theory is correct. Take the conduct of the Indians themselves as the proof. 
They appeared at the house after waiting all those weeks on Miss Verinder's birthday, and they were rewarded for the patient accuracy of their calculations by seeing the moonstone in the bosom of her dress. When I heard the story of the colonel and the diamond later in the evening, I felt so sure about the risk Mr. Franklin Blake had run, they would certainly have attacked him if he had not happened to ride back to Lady Verinder's in the company of other people, and I was so strongly convinced of the worst risks still in store for Miss Verinder that I recommended following the colonel's plan and destroying the identity of the gems by having it cut into separate stones. How its extraordinary disappearance that night made my advice useless and utterly defeated the Hindu plot, and how all further action on the part of the Indians was paralyzed the next day by their confinement in prison as rogues and vagabonds, you know as well as I do. The first act in the conspiracy closes there. Before we go on to the second, may I ask whether I have met your difficulty with an explanation which is satisfactory to the mind of a practical man? It was impossible to deny that he had met my difficulty fairly, thanks to his superior knowledge of the Indian character, and thanks to his not having hundreds of other wills to think of since Colonel Herncastle's time. So far, so good, resumed Mr. Murthwaite. The first chance the Indians had of seizing the diamond was a chance lost, on the day when they were committed to the prison at Frizzing Hall. When did the second chance offer itself? The second chance offered itself— as I am in a condition to prove, while they were still in confinement. He took out his pocket-book, and opened it at a particular leaf, before he went on. I was staying, he resumed, with some friends at Frizzing Hall at the time. A day or two before the Indians were set free, on a Monday, I think, the governor of the prison came to me with a letter. It had been left for the Indians by one Mrs. Macon, of whom they had hired the lodging in which they lived, and it had been delivered at Mrs. Macon's door, in ordinary course of post, on the previous morning. The prison authorities had noticed that the postmark was Lambeth, and that the address on the outside, though expressed in correct English, was, in form, oddly at variance with the customary method of directing a letter. On opening it, they had found the contents to be written in a foreign language, which they rightly guessed at Hindustani. Their object in coming to me was, of course, to have the letter translated to them. I took a copy in my pocket-book of the original, and of my translation, and there they are at your service. He handed me the open pocket-book. The address of the letter was the first thing copied. It was all written in one paragraph, without any attempt at punctuation, thus. To the three Indian men living with the lady called Macon at Frizzing Hall in Yorkshire. The Hindu characters followed, and the English translation appeared at the end, expressed in these mysterious words. In the name of the regent of the night, whose seat is on the antelope, whose arms embrace the four corners of the earth. Brothers, turn your faces to the south, and come to me in the street of many noises, which leads down to the muddy river. The reason is this. My own eyes have seen it. There the letter ended, without either date or signature. I handed it back to Mr. Murthwaite, and owned that this curious specimen of Hindu correspondence rather puzzled me. I can explain the first sentence to you, he said and the conduct of the Indians themselves will explain the rest. 
the god of the moon is represented in the hindu mythology as a four-armed deity seated on an antelope and one of his titles is the regent of the night here then to begin with is something which looks suspiciously like an indirect reference to the moonstone now let us see what the indians did after the prison authorities had allowed them to receive their letter on the very day when they were set free they went at once to the railway station and took their places in the first train that started for london we all thought it a pity at frizzing hall that their proceedings were not privately watched but after lady verinda had dismissed the police officer and had stopped all further inquiry into the loss of the diamond no one else could presume to stir in the matter the indians were free to go to london and to london they went what was the next news we heard of them mr bruff they were annoying mr lucre i answered by loitering about his house at lambeth did you read the report of mr lucre's application to the magistrate yes in the course of his statement he referred if you remember to a foreign workman in his apartment whom he had dismissed on suspicion of attempted theft and whom he also distrusted as possibly acting in collusion with the indians who had annoyed him the inference is pretty plain mr bruff as to who wrote the letter which puzzled you just now and as to which of mr lucre's oriental treasures the workmen had attempted to steal the inference as i hastened to acknowledge was too plain to need being pointed out i had never doubted that the moonstone had found its way into mr lucre's hands at the time to which mr murthwaite alluded my only question had been how had the indians discovered the circumstance this question the most difficult to deal with of all as i had thought had now received its answer like the rest lawyer as i was i began to feel that i might trust mr murthwaite to lead me blindfold through the last windings of the labyrinth along which he had guided me thus far i paid him the compliment of telling him this and found my little concession very graciously received you shall give me a piece of information in your turn before we go on he said somebody must have taken the moonstone from yorkshire to london and somebody must have raised money on it or it would never have been in mr lucre's possession has there been any discovery made of who that person was none that i know of there was a story was there not about mr godfrey Ablewhite. i am told he is an eminent philanthropist which is decidedly against him to begin with i heartily agreed in this with mr murthwaite at the same time i felt bound to inform him without it is needless to say mentioning miss verinder's name that mr godfrey Ablewhite had been cleared of all suspicion on evidence which i could answer for as entirely beyond dispute very well said mr murthwaite quietly let us leave it to time to clear the matter up in the meanwhile mr bruff we must get back again to the indians on your account their journey to london simply ended in their becoming the victims of another defeat the loss of their second chance of seizing the diamond is mainly attributable as i think to the cunning in foresight of mr lucre who doesn't stand at the top of the prosperous and ancient profession of usury for nothing by the prompt dismissal of the man in his employment he deprived the indians of the assistance which their confederate would have rendered them in getting into the house by the prompt transport of the moonstone to his bankers he took the conspirators by surprise before they were prepared with a new plan for robbing him 
how the Indians, in this latter case, suspected what he had done and how they contrived to possess themselves of his banker's receipt, are events too recent to need dwelling on. Let it be enough to say that they know the moonstone to be once more out of their reach, deposited under the general description of a valuable gem in a banker's strong-room. Now, Mr. Bruff, what is their third chance of seizing the diamond, and when will it come?' As the question passed his lips, I penetrated the motive of the Indian's visit to my office at last. "'I see it!' I exclaimed. "'The Indians take it for granted, as we do, that the moonstone has been pledged, and they want to be certainly informed of the earliest period at which the pledge can be redeemed, because that will be the earliest period at which the diamond can be removed from the safe-keeping of the bank.' "'I told you you would find it out for yourself, Mr. Bruff, if I only gave you a fair chance.' In a year from the time when the moonstone was pledged, the Indians will be on the watch for their third chance. Mr. Lucre's own lips have told them how long they will have to wait, and your respectable authority has satisfied them that Mr. Lucre has spoken the truth. When do we suppose, at a rough guess, that the diamond found its way into the money-lender's hands? Towards the end of last June, I answered, as well as I can reckon it. And we are now in the year forty-eight. "'Very good. If the unknown person who has pledged the moonstone can redeem it in a year, the jewel will be in that person's possession again at the end of June forty-nine. I shall be thousands of miles away from England and English news at that date, but it may be worth your while to take a note of it, and to arrange to be in London at the time.' "'You think something serious will happen?' I said. "'I think I shall be safer,' he answered. "'among the fiercest fanatics of Central Asia "'than I should be if I crossed the door of the bank "'with a moonstone in my pocket. "'The Indians have been defeated twice running, Mr. Bruff. "'It's my firm belief that they won't be defeated a third time.' "'Those were the last words he said on the subject. "'The coffee came in, the guests rose, "'and dispersed themselves about the room, "'and we joined the ladies of the dinner-party upstairs. "'I made a note of the date,' and it may not be amiss if I close my narrative by repeating that note here. June 49. Expect news of the Indians towards the end of the month. And that done, I hand the pen, which I have now no further claim to use, to the writer who follows next. End of section 32